You're listening to Reframe Your Life, and this is episode 111. I'm Sandy Reynolds, and I'm co-hosting right now with Patty M. Hall. We're bringing you stories of transformation. We've been fortunate to interview authors whose stories we have discovered that have impacted our lives and that we think are worth sharing with you. Before we get into today's episode, I want to apologize for a little problem I was having with my audio, and I hope that I have it corrected by our next recording. So thank you for being patient. The rest of the audio is great. I'm a little starstruck by our guest today, so I've asked Patty if she would do the honors and introduce her. So, Patty, take it away. Oh, I think I think the whole fangirl thing is charming. So, <laughs> welcome today to Jane Christmas, the woman whose name I've always been envious of because if you're going to be a writer, you should have a name like Jane Christmas. My goodness, <laughs> I've always been envious. Jane is a multi-memoirist, something I admire immensely, and she didn't start publishing until in her 40s. Let's take a moment for applause there. Uh, Jane has written, and I'm going to read her titles because I want everyone that listens to go out and buy all of them. As far as I can tell, they're all still available. The Pele Project, What the Psychic Told the Pilgrim, which is about her pilgrimage on the Camino Trail in Spain, but I know she has done many long hikes. My personal, let's say, attached favorite is Incontinent on the Continent, about her six weeks in Italy with her strong-willed elderly mother. And then there were Nuns, which I believe published in 2013, and now, and now Open House, A Life in 32 Moves, which launched in March this year. And in the time of COVID, I have nothing but empathy because my book, Loving Large, also is launching during this period of time. You have my full cheerleading support, Jane Christmas, because launching in the time of COVID is even more difficult than launching a book uh, in the time of the internet um, more than it ever has been before. Uh, Open House opens with you and the husband moving from Devon to the uh, and being on the seaside. Cue the seagulls noise here and moving to Bristol. And then during the new home purchase and the impending renovation, you begin to contemplate the moves of your life. I want to cut away here to say that your book might have produced 32 moves and it made me think to myself, how many moves have I had? I invite the listeners to think about how many moves they've had. I, in fact, have had eight moves, which I think is a lot, plus five during my university years. So while you and I have a beginning chat, Jane, I want Sandy to calculate her moves. And with that, welcome Jane Christmas. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, I counted my moves up this morning. I had to write them out and I have moved 15 times, not including the times I bounced back to my parents' home during my early 20s. And <laughs> I ha so that I averaged it out. That's about once every four years. And the longest I've ever lived in one house is 10 years. We've been six years in this house and i am got my eyes set on what's next already. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So yeah, Jane, Patty mentioned about launching a book during COVID-19. And I think we should just talk a little bit about that to get started. What has it been like for you compared to the other books? How has this been different? And has there been anything that's been that you've preferred in how your book has come out into the public this time? Well, uh, what to say, it's been pretty frustrating. And um, I mean, it was launched, the book was launched the day that lockdown was announced. And uh, 
So imagine a book about houses being launched on the day that um, we're all being told to stay home. So mm. it was just, uh, and you know what, there's a synergy, you know, it, there's a synergy in that. But in fact, without all the ancillary things that you have when you um, do, when you launch a book or have a, a, when you're promoting a book, without those things like book festivals and um, speaking engagements and bookstores and uh, um, libraries and book clubs, all that sort of stuff, like it, it all feeds into the promotion of a book. And without any of that, because there was none of it, um, it's just been horrendous. So one of the things I did have to do was embrace social media then, which I have been a staunch avoider of mm. forever because I just, I just don't have time for it. And, and I just didn't feel I, that I would connect with, with it in any meaningful way. And then I was offered this, um, well, what happened first was that a friend of mine who, um, is a real estate agent in Toronto and he obviously his business dried up. So he decided to turn to me and he said, so your book is just out and now there's nothing there. So you need to get on social media. And I said, no, no, I don't do social media. And he says, you do now. And so suddenly he set up these zoom sessions and, and got his assistant to, because she was then unemployed too. He says, I'm already paying her. So she's going to help as well. And the two of them, like, um, I think uh, there were a couple of Zoom sessions, about four Zoom sessions, probably. And they set me up on everything. Suddenly, I had a new email address. I was on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Like, it was like, what? Like, I don't want to <laughs> do this shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I said, okay, I'll do Instagram, but I'm not going to do Facebook. And they said, no, you have to do Facebook. Uh -huh. and I went, no. And I said, they said, the thing with Instagram and Facebook is that there are two different, uh, they're, they're separate platforms and they attract two different types of people right. and which I wasn't aware of. I figured if you're on social media, you're on everything. But, um, and then about a week later, I got this offer from the National Arts Center. They were doing this Canada Performs thing for um, initiative, they putting this initiative together. So it, they said, we'd like you to live stream a reading on Facebook and all those words together like that is, they might as well have been Greek to me. I went bah, 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 bah. live stream on Facebook. What? So I had to just like completely get myself together on that. And, um, and I did it, but I, it w I was terrified. And I think I had a breakdown about two days before I just thought I can't do it. I can't do it. But I ended up just doing it anyway. And, um, there Does anything go. great come of that in terms of connections or people's responses? Have you enjoyed the immediacy of people's responses? It was. It's, it's intimidating because you're doing your talk and all of a sudden you see these questions being asked and you don't know what to look on the screen, right? You're going, oh, yeah. what do I do? And there was nobody in the house with me to be able to say, you know, to even introduce me or anything. So it's a very awkward um, kind of... Um, set up but yeah I mean I'm surprised like 750 people have viewed it now and and uh, because it's still on my Facebook page um, I don't know whether they're laughing at my deer in the headlights look or, or um, <laughs> whether uh, they're getting anything from it but um, 
it has been neat to connect with some people and some people who I hadn't heard from for a long time got in touch with me that way. And then on Instagram, I've been in touch with other people who got in touch. So yeah, it's opened up the community. Um, it is a bit of a time suck and my head now is sort of taken from that. And as a writer, I don't need the distractions. Like I just, I don't yes. want the distractions, right? Mm -hmm. no. But you have to engage with the other, with the world. And right mm -hmm. now, thank God for social media or for any kind of social media or technology, because how would we connect? How yes. would I meet you guys, right? I know, right? Yes. Well, I reached out to you on Instagram. So I think it's, you know, now, now I really appreciate you responding now that I know your, your backstory <laughs> with your... <laughs> yeah, I'm a novice on this. Yeah, this is uh, two months ago. I would not have known any of this stuff. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Well, it seems to me like more people are reading. That might be one of the upsides to things. I've I'm just talking to everyone, and there's um, we've all kind of burned out Netflix and burned through everything <laughs> we wanted to watch, and yeah. now we're going back to books. So well, that's good. Well, I hope I hope so because the, I know the publishing business is very concerned about it, and just said people aren't buying books because some people refuse to engage with Amazon. And so they're waiting. They say, oh, I'm waiting until my bookstore opens. And it's like, oh, my God, no, don't wait. That Please long. don't. That's, that's yeah. The end of time will arrive first. The apocalypse will arrive. Or it's here, yes. you know. <laughs> yes. so, but, yeah, so it's, I think it's been damaging to the publishing industry. And um, mm -hmm. I know over there, I guess, bookstores are opening now. Are they or are they open? Indigo is open again, like the large bookstores. And yeah. Some of the um, local ones are, you know, they're doing curbside pickups and things like that. So yeah, that's good. Area. People have learned to adapt, right? And and they, uh, which is, I think is this marvelous, wonderful thing about this pandemic because it will happen again. And I think if anything, it's just um, pulling us into reality now and saying, okay, when the next one hits, this is how we're going to operate. So mm -hmm. it's like when we're not in pandemic and when we are in pandemic, there's going to be two sort of levels we're going to live on. Yeah. Agreed. It's like, it's like the move, isn't it? I mean, you, you write about the ability to manage transition and I think that's exemplified here mm. for us in COVID is I feel like I, and I have just moved house again, but I feel like everyone is going through that. Uh, I'm in a new place as soon as the reopening and we all have this new language about, you know, phases and pandemics and um, coronavirus. And we have words that we didn't have before like social distancing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So there's a new language, just like I think it feels when you do move house, right? Everything hmm. that was familiar no longer is. Well, we are, as your podcast is aptly named, we are all reframing our lives, right? And, um, and this is a reframing of humanity. In fact, mm -hmm. I, I see this as being not just about a disease. I think I, I see a whole bunch of things happening here that is altering just the way we live and, uh, and spilling everything spilling into it, right? Even the, mm -hmm. um, the rebellion south of the, um, the border and, yes. you know, in the US, um, I mean, all that, the racial tension, bubbling up it's just uh it's astounding what's happening and you can tell there's a lot of pent-up anger out in the world and uh and and dissatisfaction and that this is uh covid has sort of bottled us up all up and now people are just bursting out and not taking it anymore it's mm -hmm. it's really mm. interesting and it timely is. yeah mm -hmm. yes well, we want to talk a little bit about the book and mm. so um you're still in the Bristol house. 
And no, is I'm that the, the house I'm behind you? It looks yeah. beautiful, by the way. Yeah. So your renovations <laughs> are all complete. And any and now that you've been home for a few months, are you starting to feel, has that made you feel more content there, more settled? Or are you feeling like, oh, now that I've been inside these walls for so long, I'm ready now to start looking for something well, else? Actually, it, it curbed my appetite for houses, this, this pandemic, because suddenly I was very grateful that we had a home, that we had outdoor space. And uh, it was like, okay, we're just, this is our bunker kind of thing. Yes. And um, yeah, I, I think I, f I feel more settled here, I guess, but I'm always looking, you know, and I, you know, I, I, yeah, I just always will keep looking. I do it on probably a couple of times a week. I just scroll through the different houses and then I think maybe there's another country I should think of. <laughs> yes. yes. But bring, but bring the husband back to Canada. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I know. Um, but I think a lot of people too have been looking at their homes during this time and have been reevaluating it because when the next uh, lockdown happens, it's like, how will we adopt, adapt this house to, um, for our extended family, yes. um, for, um, for ourselves, uh, for, you know, we just took delivery last week of a small freezer, a chest size freezer. And, and um, I mean, that's something else we're going to do too, is start stocking up on stocking things. Up. And yeah, so yeah. I think you're looking at your house now as how prepared is it? How adaptable is it? And how, how good for lockdown is is it i think a lot of people people might start looking at the you know the family compound was a thing at one point and and um yeah i wonder if people are going to start doing that yeah well it's interesting i'm gonna i had a question i think it fits really well here and in, in the um open house you talked specifically about two houses that you lived in don mills and easton which is where mm -hmm. you are now mm -hmm. where the homes were built to address the economic needs at the time and what was happening mm -hmm. in in the world at the time and you know i was thinking about you know suburbs and and retirement homes which are other examples to me do you think that this uh, pandemic might actually lead to a different type of housing being built like interesting yeah that is an interesting question um I hope it does in some respects. I think places like when you look at condos now, or even in homes in England, everything is built so small. And it's just, yes. I think it's mean. I think it's very cruel to pen people up. It's like we're warehousing people rather than giving them a home. Beautifully and, put, yes. And I, I just, um, I mean, when you refer to Don Mills and, and to Easton, both those housing projects, I guess you could call them, um, they were they both come from different perspectives. One was an expansion of a city, um, Toronto, for Don Mills. And, and so the houses were built for main, mainly new families, and, um, but they had a lot of space in them. In Easton, it was like cram as many people as you can into a small area of space. And it was for working class um, people as well. So, of course, um, if you're hiring miners or people to work in the shipyards or whatever, you're not building them spacious houses. You couldn't care less about building them spacious houses. It's just house them close to where they can get to work. And 
and that that was it. So there was an expedience to that, which is is sad, you know, but um, that's the way it was too. But I hope that builders look at things, but I, I don't think that that's going to change too much, certainly not over here, because land is scarce. Yes. And, you know, and it's greedy here. It really is like things are really expensive. People do things purely for profit. You know, it's, it is a very profit driven thing. Nobody's looking at really, they talk about lifestyle and and balance or work-life balance and stuff that's bullshit you know none of that really is happening here at all mm -hmm. so it's it's political talk but um but so i hope that this time has made people at least aware of to put their foot down and say i'm not going to be stuck in some little two by four kind of home mm -hmm. But then on the, you look in Toronto on the lakefront, my, my kids, um, my, one of my sons and his wife have um, a flat um, that they rent on Queens Quay. And it's yes. tiny, tiny, you know, but, and they're in there, they're co they've been cooped up since the beginning of this as well. But it's, this is what it is, right? And yes. uh, luckily, they've got a view of the of Toronto Island, so it's wonderful. But um, but yeah, people shouldn't be made to live in such small small spaces. Yeah, you mentioned the view, right? And these sort of accoutrements that we look for mm. in our houses. And I enjoyed that. You know, the husband wanted a coffee shop. I'm with <laughs> him on that. But then there was the things that you didn't want, right? And I was I was thinking about you today in that you don't have your what is it 33 steps up the wobbly oh rocks God. to the backyard yeah, and yeah. and your your small dog the terrorist which i know oh, yes. that he, he you know your little dog isn't going to get picked up by seagulls but you know <laughs> yeah. i wondered now aren't you glad that you aren't you wasn't it fortuitous that you are so attached to interiors because you've been in your interior and you have renovated the house. And I wonder too, if you evaluate the, you know, if I had it to do over again, I would have done that. COVID's made me look at it different because you've endured so many renovations, right? Yeah. And we, re oh. we renovate for what we think we want. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, you know, something happens, uh, the COVID lockdown happens. And I wonder if the things that we want from our houses are different. And that's one of the things I enjoy is when you went looking for your houses you had you had things that you definitely didn't want to have happen again but you weren't quite sure a house had to have everything you needed you were prepared to renovate and tailor it to your needs and mm -hmm. now how how do you feel in the bristol house well well you know i feel generally happy with it I, but i do look at it and go you know if i was to do this uh, again i would have changed this I wouldn't have made that so large or I would have done this this and this and also in looking for a home now I realize I really want more outdoor space like I would rather okay. be um, not in the country per se but at least on the edge of a town or a village and and so I can I got that tiny bit of urban sort of bit or and but also the countryside my husband still hasn't found a coffee shop that he, he <laughs> likes. I mean, there's just nothing that has, uh, has appealed to him. So I'm hoping that's my trump card on the next move. <laughs> <laughs> but let, So what's the alternative? Let me ask that. I'm a, I'm a coffee shop writer. That's what, uh -huh. that's my thing. And I have found that I found it deeply depressing that I can't work on my next book in my favorite coffee shop. But so what do you do Buy a really expensive coffee maker? What has he done instead? No, nope. hmm. it's, I actually bought him a coffee grinder um, for Christmas, uh, like a hand one, 
and some coffee beans. And um, so we had been living on, we've been living on that, I guess. So he's been making his own and, um, and we also drink instant coffee. Um, But he's a cappuccino man. And um, so he, he likes that. And he also likes the atmosphere of a cafe, you know, just sitting there with a newspaper, having somebody bring him a coffee. I mean, that's sure. He's just happy with that. There's a whole atmosphere in coffee shops that I think, um, you don't get in other places. And so, yeah, but I, I have to admit a lot of, you know, what coffee shops actually dictated where we were going to move to as well. I mean, I might have wanted to move more out into the country, but I kept looking at it and going, it's not near a coffee shop. Oh, I love this place. Oh, but it's not near a coffee shop. I love and that. So, and it's, and I wish I wasn't, you know, dragged by that. And no, we don't have an expensive coffee maker. We don't have a coffee maker at all. So, well, you have to come back to Hamilton. It is the land of independent coffee shops. Well, I used to go to one on James Street North, right beside St. James Cathedral. And we oh, got the to Mulberry. Know- Was it the Mulberry? No, it's just no. further down from that. It was called Bar Michelangelo. Nobody would go in it then. It looked like oh. a, it was like a crappy looking sort of Italian place. Only Italian men in there. And I was going to church one morning um, next door. And I walked by it and I smelled this coffee. And it was, <sighs> I wasn't a huge coffee drinker, but it smelled so good. And, uh, and I went in and the men just went, crazy like they just like what are you doing here yeah why there's a female in our (laughs) presence in our presence here and the the owner just smacked them all down and he gave me a cappuccino and it was so delicious Mm. and we eventually um i took my husband there and we became friends with the owner and uh he's just a sweetest guy we met him in sorrento italy once when we were happened to be over at the same time he was so, yeah, I know Hamilton has um, has pretty good coffee. That bar Michelangelo's gone out of. Um, he he's retired now, and uh, it was Frank. It was his name, but um, yeah. Hi, Frank, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. <laughs> but the, they have really good cafes here, and uh, and I think in a way, well, they're certainly more populous than they are over there, and not as many chains as you do have in in North America. Yeah. Yeah. So with moving, uh, you taught, I was, well, first of all, was there anything that really surprised you when you started to unpack all of your moves? Was there anything that you weren't expecting to discover? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was really so bizarre because I can remember when it all started to happen as I literally was scraping the wallpaper off and just went, how many times have I done this? And then I started thinking back And as I went through all the houses and all the moves, I just recognized the disruption that would be. And I got really angry with my parents. And and I think, I mean, I'm embarrassed about that because really once you hit hit, a certain age, you've got to be over your parents, right? And, um, but I had harbored such resentment toward them for doing that. And I thought I have no connections to so many parts of my life anymore because it was just like I was, like a plant that was pulled out by the roots and, you know, replanted somewhere else. So um, uh, anyway, but in writing about my past and really sitting with it, um, that resentment 
got transformed a little bit into understanding because I began to meditate a little bit on their background, my parents' backgrounds. And then I saw, okay, they might have been running from something. And yes. as a little kid, you can't say, hey, don't stop, you know, stop running from this. Um, you can't, you don't have any control over that. So that was, that kind of um, surprised me. Um, and it also surprised me when I really tallied up how many moves I'd actually made. I, I don't think I'd ever sat and unpacked that fully. But I was also impressed on my ability to be um, resilient and, and to adapt because that's what you do, right? And I think, if anything, that's what my parents taught me by all these moves is about how to adapt and, um, and be um, self-sufficient and, and be resilient and not be afraid of change, probably, too. Mm -hmm. I, I really admire that. And it brought it back to me. It's as a writer, the way I've made a living as a writer in the last 12 years or so is I have, quote, unquote, flipped houses. So I've I've intentionally moved every two or three years and taken advantage of the volatile market here mm -hmm. around Toronto, although it was going very well and, and not so much now. And I've just flipped another house oh, and now good I'm done. For you. But, wow, but now, I, now I'm done. Now I'm done because oh. I want to, I want to write and do, as you say, look for maybe it's the next country. Maybe it's Bristol for me. I think mm -hmm. it's actually uh -huh. is actually, I think it is Devon or Cornwall to be honest. Oh, wow. Okay. But that is, um, you know, and I'll get around to my question, but as when I was in planning school and we studied Don Mills and I went to planning school at U of T, U of Toronto. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the books that stuck with me was by Claire Cooper Marcus. She wrote a book called something close to a house as the mirror of self. And that has always stayed with me as I've done these moves. And I've thought, do I have a transient nature? Is that why I've done this? Or have I come to see houses as a commodity? And both of those things have never sat well with me. And I wonder for you is, and you watched it with your mother, you watched it with your family, your mother certainly sounds like she drove the moves. How do you look at a house? Do you look at it as a personalized commodity? Do you look at it? How does home feel to you? What did you, and how much of that comes from your mother's idea of the next house and the next hmm. piece of building perfection? That is really interesting. Um, I think I'm a little bit of both, really. You know, when I walk into a place, and if it needs a lot of work, I will, you know, first I have to look and see, can I envision a change? And, 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 and then I'm starting, to, then I start to tally up what the cost may be. You know, is this going to be more money than it's worth? And forget it then. Um, but I also look at the potential and I go, yeah, you know, and in a couple of years, I could flip this and make some money. So I think you do. I mean, property is such a big thing, isn't it? it it's, it's the biggest thing. It's the most expensive thing that we ever buy. And, um, and I think you have to look at it at least a little bit um, from that sort of practical side. Um, people say, oh, you shouldn't look at um, investing in houses um, as your pension or whatever. And I go, why not? Why not? <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, at a certain yep. point, it was the way to make money. And certainly as a single parent um, in the, when was it the late 80s? Um, that was how I was able to, to do it to survive. And it was great. I mean, it was just, if, if I had not been so concerned about my children, um, I would have done it a lot more. Um, mm. But 
I, you know, you're always worried that an ex is going to look at you and go, oh, you're being, you're destabilizing the children and, and you're doing this and that. And um, um, yeah, so, I mean, we move for different reasons or we make different choices as we go through life. But, and sometimes we're, we're held back from wanting to do what we really want to do because there are other people involved. And I'm not the type that would steamroller over my kids or a partner um, just to get what I want. Uh, I wish I could, but I, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the spirit of compromise, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of spirit, good segue there. I was thinking, I was really struck by your ghosts in homes, the bit you talked about yes. in the book. And, you know, I know you're a, a very spiritual person and you were talking about actual ghosts but i think also within a home there's something when you walk into a house where there's like a a a feeling you get in some homes that you don't get in other homes and Mm -hmm. you, you just walk into a house and it feels calm and peaceful and you can just relax and it has nothing to do with decor and then other houses you walk in and you feel really tense like it's like mm. something here i just can't relax i don't know what it is and i was curious about that like first of all if you actually think that their houses have some kind of uh if they are an entity in their in themselves or what it is that makes that in some houses and is there a way that we can actually intentionally create that in a home or is it just done ah that's that's difficult i i would say it takes a you know i'm a very sensitive person for good or for bad but um I can walk in and I do get a vibe and I'm sure you guys do too. I mean, you wouldn't be creatives if you didn't get vibes or strong feelings for certain things. And I don't know. It's just, I just have a feeling when I walk into a place, I can tell if something is there and, and I don't know why, but I, you know, with the Hamilton house and the the ghost that was there, Carl, the ghost, (laughs) it was really funny when I came to sell that house. Um, I had a, the agent called me up one night after viewing and she said, what did you cook last night for dinner? And I said, oh, I don't know. And I said, I think we even had it outside. Like on the, I did it on the barbecue. She said, you weren't cooking curry or something like that. I said, Oh God, no, I, I, I don't do that. And, and um, she said, and I said, why? And she said, because the, she said, I couldn't smell a thing, but the woman I took into the house I couldn't, I basically couldn't get her past the front hall because she said there was this horrible smell in the house and and it just, and it drove her out. And I, and it just made me laugh because I thought, well, first I said, what is this woman like? And she said, well, she was a bit of a nightmare, you know, and very critical and everything. And I said, I bet you the ghost didn't want her to buy the house. So he just like sent her on her way that way. Carl is a cook. Yes. yes, (laughs) Or or he was unleashing something awful. Mm -hmm. And I had that, I had this uh, woman, um, somebody that I worked with once and she came over to the house to, um, just to look at a piece of furniture that I was selling and she walked in and I could see she all all of a sudden started gagging too and and it was like oh are you okay and she says oh you know I think I need to get back to the office soon or whatever and and it turned out this person 
had st ended up stabbing me in the back at work. You know, it was that sort of thing. So I think that there's something in the house that was benevolent or was a fan of mine and, and, and was watching my back a little bit and repelling these people because I also had loads of people come to the house who just loved it. Like I couldn't get them out of the house sometimes because they found it comfortable and just, they, they loved everything about it. So That's um, it, it was, it was just very interesting to see people's reactions to a home. Some people don't respond yeah. to, to certain places. Right. And um yeah. Mm -hmm. What do people see in your home? I'm sorry to interrupt on that one, Sandy, but what do you, so in this idea of what people see and what we respond to, yeah. I mean, I, that, what, what do you see in a home? Is it the bones? Is it the expansion? Is it the, how I can set up my things? What do you see? Oh, what, what, when I go into an empty home or when I go when you, into when a you home go of into a friend or some? A prospective home, I guess, of, oh, when you're contemplating home. a move. Yeah. Well, first I'm looking at the history and I'm looking okay. because I'm an architect freak and uh, or an yeah. architecture freak. And, and um, so I'm looking at it from that, you know, I'm looking for high ceilings and, and, um, and light. I think those are the two main things. And then where is the furniture going to go? Um, yeah, I don't know. Somehow I, I go, can I imagine myself in this space? Okay. And I also even project even further and I go, okay, if my kids came, where would they sit? Where would they sleep? Where would, um, how, where would the dinner table be? What's this place going to look like at Christmas or something like that? So I go way, way further, you know, and meanwhile, my my husband's just looking at the door frames or something like that, you know, and, uh, but I go, I got this all planned out. You don't have to worry about anything. I've got the wallpaper picked out here, but um, yeah, I go pretty deep in it, but I go very quickly too. I, I kind of go at warp speed uh, into a house and I can pretty much tell within a few seconds, whether I'm going to like it. So that's why this house that we're in now was a difficult one because I was forcing it. Like I, right. I didn't feel it and my husband didn't feel it, but, um, but we were, uh, there was a raging housing. The, the market was in overdrive here. And I just thought if we don't act soon, we're going to get um, priced out of the market. And as it was every house that we went to and we went, okay, we like this one, put in an offer. No, it was sold. It was sometimes they were sold before we could even get in the door. So it was insane and you just start to panic. So this was a bit of a panic buy, which I hate to do, but that's what, you know, sometimes you just do it. Yeah. And um, so I think, you know, that's, I do, that's why I looked further ahead. And now I look at the shortcomings in this house and I don't mean that in a negative way, but I just go, what would I, if I got to move again, what would I want more? And, oh. um, and what is missing here that I don't have that, that I would want in another home. And, and so that's, I sort of just, I learn, you know, each way and, you know, you have so much more space in North American homes too. Yeah. So you don't have to compromise like, like we do over here. It's a, it's a totally different housing market. And I know everybody's looking at, you know, Downton Abbey and you know the cruelty <laughs> and everything the crown and everything and they go oh yes. we moved it in England we could have that <laughs> no <laughs> you know? and 
And I mean, everybody lives in this fantasy world with houses, but yeah. the reality and what things cost, it's, it's just, it would just blow your mind. And um, mm. it's really silly. I, I think it would be great if you could read something from your book for sure. us. And okay. let our wow. listeners hear this book. It's such a good book. Well, while we contemplate the fantasy world. Yes. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to read from where you suggested Sandy, oh. um, that, that passage. Um, I was actually going to start a little bit before that, but no, I'll just start there then and read to the end of that passage. Okay. Sure. Okay. How is the rubric of stacking stone or brick determined to ensure the durability and stability of a home? And what is it in that conglomeration of hard materials that go into building a home, brick, concrete, stone, wood, aluminum, steel, that makes the whole ultimately soft to us, one that so readily absorbs our emotions and memories and fears? When a marriage breaks down, does a marital home suffer too? It is one thing for houses to resist centuries of battering by mother nature, but what of the blunt forces of human nature? How do houses withstand the reverberation of anger or of inconsolable grief within their walls? How do they withhold secrets and pain without cracking or absorb extreme joy without their windows shattering in their frames? What is it about the homes of other people that makes us swoon with desire, that makes you want to pull up a chair, stare and luxuriate in the surroundings, and imagine that the home belongs to you? With some homes, you are happy to leave, and the sooner the better. Some do not try hard enough to evoke comfort. Then there are the ones that try too hard, exuding the perfumed and surgically enhanced glamour of a superannuated movie star. A third type of home enchants at an almost cellular level. You want to make it, you want to take in every inch of it. The arrangement of knickknacks on bookshelves, the sight of a roll of herbs on a windowsill, the interplay of light and shadow, the choice of colors and furnishings, a passageway leading into the garden. I confess to being mesmerized this way when visiting or seeing images of Spanish, Italian and Moroccan homes. Is there an alchemical formula at work in the homes to which we are attracted? Is it 20% nostalgia, 30% color, 10% furnishings, 15% botanicals and plants, 25% lighting? Surely the formula is different for everyone. In the same way that a meal tastes better when someone else cooks it, some houses look, feel, and smell better than our own. Is it a case of the other person's grass being always greener? Perhaps it says something about our lack of confidence in putting together a home or about our general state of discontentedness. Thank you. So moving. Thank you for that. Your, um, your writing, I'd love to turn to that um, because it's... Uh, it's, it has a style all its own. And I so applaud that as you have, you know, the gift of the narrative and the, the poetics, which the piece you just read for us certainly shows, but your ability to weave in self-effacing humor. Uh, I like 
to say that's your inner Canadian coming out. <laughs> but it's uh, you also are really open about the fact that you didn't land here at 18 years old and knew this was going to be the way it was, that you found your way here. And uh, I wonder if you could reflect for us on, and it's a personal passion here, but I'd love to hear you reflect on you coming to this in your 40s and being, by anyone's standards, prolific and the nonfiction choice. Did it find you or did you find it? I think, uh, yeah, I was 48 when my first book, The Peely Project, was published. Um, and I had been writing before then because I was a journalist. That was my, um, that was my career. But I always got slotted into editing jobs. And I didn't love that. I wanted to be a writer. But I also didn't want to be that hardcore reporter either. It just, that wasn't me. Um, so I kind of, I struggled there. But I also felt it would be um, sort of um, arrogant of me in a way to say, I'm a writer. I want to be a writer on this newspaper. I'm not an editor. I want to be a writer. And so I just, I didn't. I didn't have the guts to sort of stand up for myself. Um, but occasionally, um, I would write something and I'd send it to an editor that I worked with and just say, well, what do you think of this? And they go, wow, I really like this. So uh, can we publish this? And I go, oh, sure. And I think I also did that with the facts and arguments page. I don't know whether it's still the facts and arguments page in the Globe and Mail, but they used to have yes. this thing. So I used to write, I wrote a couple of pieces for them and people were really surprised that I could, I could do that. Anyway, um, that's how I, I sort of sort of wove my way into, into writing in that way. But after the Peely um, book was published, a friend of mine called me up and said, so when's the book version coming out? And I said, right. well, there, there is no book version. And he said, well, no, there is, you keep telling me about these other stories. So there's a book version. And, and I went, oh, really? I said, I don't know how to write a book. And he said, oh, come on. And he and this other person he worked with, they put together a, a package of my columns and work and they sent it out to publishers. And that's how I got my, my first publishing deal. And so, and then after that, I mean, I was away at the races, but the Peely project, I had seven weeks to write that. That's what, that was the deadline I was given. You've got seven weeks. And it was like, yeah, but, wow. um, so, it's, but that's well, the thing when you have a journalism background too, yes. I, I work to deadline very well. <laughs> apparently, and um, apparently wrote Open House in six months, which is possible, but not preferable in some situations. Was that mm. your choice to crank that out? Did you have the deal? Did you have the publisher? No, I didn't have any of that. And I think it was just sort of sitting there. I know my agent had said, um, people want another memoir from you. And I wanted to write fiction. <laughs> I didn't want to do <laughs> memoir. So yeah. I just thought, oh, what am I going to write? And but then I sat down at the computer and I remember it was like January the 1st and I just started banging this story out and yeah. it, and it just, I thought I'm going to give myself six months to do this. And I did it. And then I, Fantastic. and within a month I had a deal. So it was, it was very, um, that was very satisfying, but most of my books do take about a year to write. I thought as you know, the, my inner geek in publishing has followed this. And I think, are you, do I recall, right? You're represented by transatlantic Sam yes, Haywood right. is your, yeah. yeah. So mm -hmm. I, in Canada, I am as well. And oh, great. Um, yeah. yeah, but I noticed that you were published by Canadian publishers and maybe that's just my 
you know, my, my softness, but I, I love that you stayed home. I love that your books have stayed home in Canada. And is that, is that been important to you? It has. Well, because my, my base is in Canada. Most of my fans are in Canada. And, and so, I mean, I just would automatically go, want to go for a Canadian publisher. It's just, um, yeah, it's, it's just the way it is. But I mean, I, uh, yeah. And because I've got an agent there too, she pitches to Canadian uh, once. So yeah, that's, it's just the way it's worked out. Yeah. Mm. And is that um, your writing process, you cranking this out in six months? So does, is journalism come in there too? Is a, are you an outliner? Are you a uh, helicopter level planner? Do you get down into the weeds and organically let, in this case, each move came along, but you didn't stay strict to each move. You allowed yourself to expand and contract based on what was coming up for you Mm -hmm. in revisiting these homes. Is that outside of your journalism background, that process of letting yourself go off tangentially into what memoir loves so much? No, I, I think that's just me. (laughs) Um, And maybe my wonky brain, because I do, I'm like that in conversation too. It's like, I see a flashy thing over here and I go, oh, let's go over here now. Oh, and there's something over here. Let's do this. So I'm like that normally in conversation. Uh, But I do have a journalism background and I I like to start uh, chronologically and let's move some of the chapters around. Now, I think it always is going to start with that, um, with the, the, the um, the first chapter as it is now that we have yes. to move, and so um, so I did that. But he felt other chapters could be moved around, and we and so we did that. So mm. I'm always open to working with an editor. Um, I love it when they rip apart my work, and I'm certainly mm-hmm. certainly don't think I my work is precious enough to say no. This this is gold. You know, don't touch my words. Um, no, I, I love it when somebody gets in there and say, "Hey, this is kind of crappy, and I think you can do better." I go, "Okay, that's great. That's what I want to hear." You you rise to it, right? Yeah. Do you do you find that you write in a particular space in your home? You know, I alluded to that I'm I'm a coffee shop writer, which clearly I can't do now. But do you find a space in a home as soon as you walk in, and that's going to be your little writing space, or are it, you really takes, are you flexible? It takes a while. Um, but I'm sort of settled where I'm speaking to you now is where I, I write and it's an open space. Um, it's not ideal um, because it's the sort of the second reception room in our house. So, and we took down part of the wall, so it's open to the hallway. Um, but it is what it is. And I just have to, um, that's one of the compromises I had to make and, and I can adapt. And sometimes I'll take the laptop and move into another part of the house, but um Normally, I'm quite content where I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I heard you speak a few years ago at the Unitarian Church in... Oh, yes, right. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, on Dundurn, yeah. And I don't know if that was when And Then There Were Nuns came out. I'm not sure if that was part of that book launch. But I'm very interested in how your faith and spirituality support you in your writing process. Like, do you have mm. any rituals, or how do you draw on that as a writer? Oh, well, I do pray before I start a book, <laughs> you know, that's kind of like the big thing. And, um, and I do depend on my faith to bring me some patience when I'm writing, but it doesn't always. Um, I am an impatient person. 
there's a fair bit of ego in writing and and so you have to be you've got to temper that a lot and i've tried to balance that ego thing with sort of pushing myself out into the community a little bit more it's so easy for me just to stay in here and just stare at a laptop all day and write but i can't do that and and um that's going to take something away from me as a person but it's also i feel like i'm not giving of myself and I need to give more of myself uh, to the community. So in addition to writing books, I mean, I, um, before we, we went into this COVID thing, um, I, I'm a reading coach to a woman who's in her 60s who's learning to read for the first time. Um, and I was meeting with her once a week. Um, I volunteer one week uh, each morning at the local charity shop. Um, I bake for the local pub. And um, another thing I'd been doing is um, I work with survivors of rape um, to help them reframe their experiences so that they emerge as the uh, victor of their, um, of their uh, experience rather than the victim. And I think that's a very important way of, of helping to uh, transform them or help them transition out of trauma, although it, it still stays with you. But um, uh, so I do those things to, to get out there and it, it, it is part of my spiritual practice to do that because I have to engage with the real world and I want to engage and I want to help. Um, that's, that's the other thing. So do you, do you take them towards writing, Jane? I'm curious when you're working with others in any supportive role, do you encourage writing as a method of the reframe? Absolutely. I, I do. And I, I certainly do it in myself, in my own writing. It, it is so autobiographical. I mean, sometimes my writing is like therapy to me. And yes. uh, so um, it's, uh, um, I find it really helpful. And, and by writing things out, I find I express myself better in writing than I do in speaking. And, and, uh, and so I encourage that in others too, to do that. And even people who are trying to work through traumatic things, I think it's really important. Do you think you're kinder to yourself in your writing? You know, um, maybe I'm stretching it there, but we, you know, exploring the relationships that have been bound up in your moves, your mm -hmm. mother, um, former husbands, children. Um, do you think when you explore it on the page, you have the ability to look back with more kindness and forgiveness and in that way, more spirituality than oh, we might if we just talked about it? Yeah, I think so. I, I think so because it is a process and, and, and you do go through a lot more when you're writing something down than when you're just regurgitating it to someone um, because you're leaving out a whole bunch of details when you're talking to somebody else. And this way you can go further inside yourself and, um, and hopefully come out with a, dip, a, a deeper and more compassionate view of, of people or situations. Mm. The when there's a delay in the publishing process, of course, um, usually 18 months or two years before the book mm. hits the stands. And I was reflecting when reading that, wondering, are you still in the Bristol house? Because there's a good chance you might be moved now because you would have written the book. I wrote mine in summer of 2018. I submitted. Mm. So maybe you did as well. So mm. immediately after submitting, you're in that house. Did you find yourself immediately wanting to go to the next book or did you want to sit with the space you were in right now? 
No, I went with the the next book. <laughs> you know, okay. I, 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 I got it off my plate, sent it to the my agent, and that was it. And it was like, okay, now I'm going to focus on the um, on something nonfiction. And uh, yeah, so I, I just I just move along. And sometimes I haven't been like that, but I I really feel now that I want to invest a lot more time uh, in writing. And uh, um, but before I was sort of being, you know, I was really focused on homes and where I was going to yes. live and being settled and getting perfection in my life. And I, now I'm content with having not, with not having perfection in my life. And, uh, and, and that's I, why I want to stay put too in mm-hmm. this house just for Do a couple you, more years. You, I, I read or saw or heard that you were pursuing fiction. And I wondered about that perfection thing Mm -hmm. is we have the illusion as writers and nonfiction writers that we can achieve perfection and that there's a journalistic thrust here, but going into fiction, you can muddy the water. You can bend characters that are or are not real and going into fiction as with your home, are you able to now relieve yourself of the perfection goal? No, I don't think so. I think it's still there. Um, I, I'm I'm trying to understand what you meant with your trend the, the transition. The, I mean, are you going into fiction now, and do you feel invited into the less precise by trying fiction, or is that really intimidating? I know I how I would feel. Yeah, I feel I intimidated it, by it. Uh, and it is intimidating in a way, but I just try to say I'm telling myself a story, and <sighs> um, I, I'm not going to. I'm not trying to prove anything or or um or recreate something or whatever so i I find a subject that is interesting to me and i just think let me see if i can make this into a story or what kind of story will i make it into Mm. and will it be i might love it and somebody else may hate it and so Mm. that's that's the way it is Mm. we could ask you many more questions but i'm just looking at the <laughs> yeah, time and thinking we need to wrap up so a couple questions in closing that are pretty quick i think what's your favorite memoir so not one of your own They're okay my, i can say i, would, I can say yours we, okay, yes. you, you can. uh, i can't pick one i have to pick three because um uh, uh and so the first one would be the seven story mountain by thomas merton um i just totally it made me totally relax into religious life when i when i read it and uh, the book is just so unbelievably human and so beautifully written as well um and i don't think you have to be religious to um to find it uh worth reading so um uh i i think it's uh it, it's it's written by someone who is desperate to find where they fit in and i just i found that so attractive mm. Um, I love The Movable, uh, Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway. Mm-hmm. I don't love Ernest Hemingway at all, but um, this one, I did mention it in Open House. Um, I just began reading it the day I arrived in Paris in a thunderstorm, and um, I, this book just totally carried me away, and I was staying in the very neighborhood that it was written in, so ah, I just beautiful. adored it. But another discovery that I just love is... Um, Patty Smith's Just Kids. And uh, I've always been a little afraid of Patty Smith. You know, she's so daunting looking and uh, the scowl and the hair and uh, mm-hmm. sort of that, that music um, just 
yeah, it was just difficult for me to sort of hook into. But then I came across the book in my library or in a in the local library, and I'd heard of it, and I thought, yeah, I wonder what this is like. I thought I would give it a try, and sometimes I do that. I'll just walk into a library and pick something off the shelf just to be challenged. And I so loved it. She is a beautiful, beautiful writer. And um, it's about the 60s in New York City and that whole music scene. Um, and But she has such a generosity in her writing, such kindness in her writing. It just, it totally changed my perception of her. And I felt so it broke my heart that I had prejudged oh. her, you know, oh. I, so I adore her writing. I would recommend just kids or M train. That's another one, but I'd start with just kids. Wow. So thank you for that. You. You're welcome. So you mentioned uh, social media. How are people going to connect with you on the dreaded, located? <laughs> you know what? The best way is if people, I respond really well and, and, timely to email so people go onto my website and you can find my email there and send me a note that way otherwise instagram or facebook works too wonderful well thank you so much for your time patty i'll let you wrap it up i think the wrap up is where is jane christmas going next so what book will you leak for us what you're working on now uh, you know what? I haven't really got into it. This COVID thing is sort of ruining my concentration. So I'm, I'm reading more right now. I'm in that space. But um, I see something from the middle, medieval or Middle Ages time that I'm, uh, that I'm sort of being drawn to. But it could mm, be something else entirely. Yeah. The but world, thank you the, so much. Of course, thank the world you. needs more Jane Christmas as far uh, as I'm concerned. And we thank you, for ta- thank you for taking the time with us. Thank oh, you, you guys are great. Thank you so much. It was so much fun to speak Canadian for a, for a change. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us for this edition of Reframe Your Life. It was great to have Jane Christmas join Patty and I. If you'd like to know more about Patty's work in helping you shape your memoir, check out pattymhall.com. And of course, you can find me at sandyreynolds.com. We are excited to have another great author story coming your way in two weeks. See you then.